Before we get started this morning, let's bow in prayer. Hallelujah. You are worthy of all praise, all adoration, all glory deserves, is deserved by you, God. And we're trying our best this morning to bring it to you in song, to stop and take this memorial meal of the bread and the cup, uh, welcoming you to remind us of how much you love us and committing to you of how much, because of that love, we're willing to love the people around us and those who are far from you that we want to know you. Uh, Together, we're going to lift up this morning the people from the gates of the city church and ask it as you bless our services here, that you would also bless theirs, knit our hearts together so that truly we can let the world know that your son came and that it mattered. Uh, This morning, please, Spirit, work through me. Help, Help us to hear something that helps us leave here today. Better money managers, yes, but just better disciples. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said. This summer is in a series I entitled Peace Talks. We declared war on anxiety. We determined that God, as our helper, we wanted to approach life. We wanted more than that, to say goodbye to living under constant stress. And we believe that's possible because of the spirit-inspired promises that were given us by a man writing them in all places, prison. Apostle Paul says on behalf of God, we don't have to be anxious about anything. (laughs) I didn't make that up. Paul did. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, we don't have to be anxious about anything. Not a coronavirus, not brain tumors, not one more offense sending my daughter to jail. We don't have to be anxious about anything if by prayer and petition with thanksgiving we we bring our requests, our, our needs, our hurts to God knowing that the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard our hearts in Christ Jesus. That's what God's promised. We looked at that this summer. And if you need a refresher course about peace, it's there online at our website for free, hopefully till Jesus comes. Jesus talked about peace. But you know what he talked about more than peace? He talked about money. While I was doing my series on peace talks... I put together a series to begin uh, that we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks called Money Talks. Um, Because Jesus talked about it a lot. One-sixth of all of his recorded statements were made about money. One-third of all of his recorded parables are about money. Isn't that interesting? And all of that from a guy who never asked anybody for money. (laughs) Never. Never. And had very little of it himself. But God knew that we would struggle with money and the handling of it. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to have a money talk. This is the money talk. There's other talks, but we're going to have the money talk. And if you're visiting with us, I know some of you are thinking, great. <laughs> I've been trying to make time to come and see what these Christians are about at KCC. And I, and I come for the money talk, really? Is he going to try and get in my wallet on the first Sunday that I'm here? No, I'm not. Not. Or maybe some of you brought a friend with you for the first time and trying to get him here. No, really, sportsmen, we're going to start the money talk today. Well, I can promise you this. You're going to be blessed because I'm not going to ask you for a dime of your money. Not in this entire series one time. So to get us started, here's a few statistics. I think they're pretty impactful whether you're a Jesus follower or not. 
Here's the first one. The average credit card debt per family in the U.S. is now $9,333. That's average. An average of 14% of a family's income goes to pay credit card debt every month. 40% of Americans spend more money than they make. Financial stress is the number one reported cause of divorce. Now that's just four of many statistics alarming I could probably give you. But I just want to start with those four because that's enough. It's enough to make me want to change our national motto to, it's a bumper sticker I actually saw the other day that said this, I owe, I owe, it's off to work I go. If those numbers aren't descriptive of your family, yay God, good on you, great job. But even if they're not descriptive of your family, I bet you know some family and some friends who are in some deep weeds financially. Could use some help. But let's be honest, for many of us, our finances are a mess. And for the first time in our lives, maybe, just maybe, God has you in a place where you can hear how he can help you with those finances. Usually when I get in a crisis, one of my first thoughts is, I need some advice here that will fix this. But what I've learned over the years is, is advice rarely fixes anything. Most of my life I've found that a change in what I believe, accompanied by a change in my behavior, is what fixes most things, not miracles. What any of us need in the midst of a financial disaster, I can assure you, is not a miracle. You'll be right back in it before long. What we need is a new mind and a new heart. And Jesus says that will come when you get yourself, listen to me, a new treasure. Next slide, guys. Here's how he said it. Where your treasure is, is where your heart's going to be. Where your treasure is, is where your heart's going to be. So let me ask this, what's your treasure? What matters most to you? What, if you could get your hands on it, if you could possess it, if it could be yours, would solve pretty much every problem you have? There's a lot of people who would fill that blank in with money. If I could just have more money, it would fix everything. But maybe that's not your treasure. What is your treasure, though? Let me ask it again. What is it you can't help but think about? What is it you can't help but speak about? What is it that you schedule every week in your life or, or you think about nearly every day of your life? That, my friend, is your treasure. And on behalf of God, I want to say this for him, and I think I can without even questioning for a moment whether this valid or not. Here's what I think God would say. I would like to be your treasure. Jesus makes a bold statement when it comes to money. He says this, you cannot serve both God and money. And many of us go, oh, yes, we can. Watch me. God says, no, you can't serve both God and money. And so, Jimmy, are you saying that God's anti-money? Oh, no. As we're going to see, God's going to show us that money is just a tool of life, but it's not the source of life. A very necessary tool, yes, but the Father knows how easily this tool can become, listen to me, an idol. Jesus knew that money was the greatest potential idol to become our God substitute. 
And so the reason that he talks about money a lot is not because he was trying to get money out of people's pockets, but because he was trying to get idols out of people's hearts. His mission was not to make money. His mission was to make disciples. So why don't we talk about how we can be great disciples who learn how to handle money in a great way? Luke did a great job while ago. When he read these words, let's read them one more time. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. That's the foundation verse for all that we're going to be talking about in regards to money for the next couple of weeks. Now what's Paul referring to? Well, If you didn't know this about him, before Jesus came to earth as a baby and entered the family of a minimum wage carpenter, nobody, no one has ever been richer than he was. Not Solomon, not Warren Buffett, not Oprah, not Bill Gates, not Jeff Bezos, not Madonna. Now those other folks have got a lot of wealth, but before entering our world, Jesus owned it all. He made it all. He's Lord over it all. However, as Paul writes, he didn't hold on to it, that wealth and that privilege, at all. When the time came, Paul writes, he set aside the privileges of deity and he took on the status of a slave. And he became human. And having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. And he didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And I'm telling you, it's the worst kind of death, Paul writes. It was a crucifixion. Now, you may say, well, Jimmy, that's true. And it's impressive. But what does that have to do with me managing my money? Well, I'm going to let Paul tell you. Because the verse that precedes those incredible verses there say this about the mindset God would like for you to have. He just simply says, have this mindset among you that is in Jesus Christ. And he tells every single one of us about a man who was rich beyond imagination becoming poor so that we might become rich. And he did it through a cross. Paul says, I want you to have this in your head at all times in your life. And here's the four words that I think probably best describes those verses so that we can hang on to them with a little handle. And here it is. It's not about me. When I think about the cross, those are the four words that I think about. Jesus hanging on it. It's not about me. And I think if we can hang on to that, we'll handle money as well as we could ever possibly think about handling it. That's the attitude I want us to have emblazoned on our hearts and our minds the next time that you get ready to pull your credit card for groceries or open your wallet to buy a grande decaf two-pump mocha at Starbucks or to use your PayPal on your phone to get another golf club or a Gucci bag when you sit down to write the check to patrol a children's home in India, one of our mission points, or share part of your savings to help an AOH mom have some furnishings in her apartment when she gets out on her own, I want us to remember, it's not about me. And I think this might help you do it. Maybe. Let's give it a shot. 
I want to borrow something that I've always associated with being Catholic. You ever seen anybody do this? Have you? And when you see that, don't you normally associate them with being Catholic? I do. Well, I want to borrow that, okay, to help me manage my money better. So do me a favor and do it with me. Here we go. Ready? Start here, 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 here. Now, who went left and who went right first? It doesn't matter. One more time. Here we go. Ready? Here we go. Here, 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 and then here. Now, let's, I'm, uh, this is a stretch for some of you, okay? Two things at one time. Here we go. It's not about me. One more time. Here we go. It's not about me. One more time and we're done. It's not about me. If there's anything that I think Jesus felt when he was on the cross, it's not about me would have to be it. Now, as I look at it, I go, God is for me. Either one of those is really cool. And if you see me doing that before I step up in the pulpit from now on, that's what I'm saying to myself. It's not about me. And that's a good thing to say if you're a preacher right about to step up on stage and talk to 400 people. I think it's also a good thing to say when you're a batter, about to step into a batter's box and get ready to hit. We see them do it on television, right? I don't know if they're thinking that, but they ought to. It's not about me. It's about the team. Or or when a quarterback throws a, a touchdown pass, I think it's a great thing when he does this because it's not about him and his stats. It's about the team, right? I think it's a great thing to have as you're stepping into your math class, math teachers, to remember as you teach those students that it's not about me. Or when you're getting ready to discipline one of your kids because they really have done something that's worthy of a little bit more than just a talking to, and you're about ready to discipline them with whatever the timeout's going to be or whatever the lack of of, of games or driving the car or maybe even some punishment physically, to remember it's not about me. Paul says, I want you to have this mindset with you all the time. And then he talks about this rich person becoming poor so that we could have everything. And so that's why I'm trying in my lifetime to come up with ways. I I carry a cross with me, my golf bag, because sometimes when I'm playing golf, I can become a little bit too competitive and too worried about my score. And so one of the things I mark my ball with is a little cross because I need to be reminded sometimes when I'm over a four-foot putt, Jimmy, it's not about you. It's not. This series will mean nothing. What I have to say over the next couple of weeks will mean very, very little. Maybe I should say that. If we don't have this principle in place before I open my wallet, write a check, pull out my credit card, or hand someone some cash, it's not about me. Now, that's one thing for Jesus to have said, but you know what? It's an entirely different thing for him to have lived. And so I'm going to talk as we close here about what I see him living especially in the last 24 hours of his life, that just so drives home to me who I want to be as his disciple. His disciple. The number of people who can handle life under pressure is probably pretty small. Not that they can't, but they just won't. Because you always find out who the real person is when it's put under pressure. 
I know who I want to be. I know what I sometimes strive to be, but I'll show you who I really am when I'm placed under pressure. The number is large of those who can throw a football accurately in the backyard to their boy or little girl. But you let it be the fourth quarter and fourth down and goal to go with four seconds left in the Super Bowl. And a 320-pound defensive lineman is bearing down on you and you need a touchdown to win. And the number of quarterbacks can hit a receiver between two defenders running 15 miles per hour is few because pressure reveals who we really are. The number is large of those people who can drive a car down the country back roads on Sunday afternoon and keep that car between the yellow lines. Many people can do that. But you let it be the last lap of the Daytona 500. And there's three of you left who could possibly win that championship race and you are no more, or you are minimally 18 inches apart, no more than 18 inches, and you're driving 200 miles per hour and someone's got to pass someone to win. Now to keep that car between the lines doing that under that kind of pressure, that number shrinks really quickly, the people who can do that effectively. The numbers are many of men and women who can fire a rifle with pinpoint accuracy at an enemy target that's on paper at 25 yards. But you place that same person in the field of battle and that enemy is a live person who's at 25 yards with a rifle himself aimed at you. And all of a sudden, pinpoint accuracy goes out the window for most of us because pressure reveals who we really are. I'll say it again. Pressure doesn't always reveal the person that we could be, but it does reveal the person that we are. And that's what makes the gospel account of Jesus in his last 24 hours so amazing to me. Here's what Dr. Luke says about Jesus sharing a Passover meal with the disciples, spending some time in the garden, and he's praying. And what lies before him in the next few hours is so intense. Luke writes, his head was leaking. Not sweat like we would sweat, but sweat like drops of blood. Luke chapter 22 and verse 4. Now we know it's cold because later that evening we're going to hear the mention of some folks that are warming themselves by a fire. We'll talk about that in a few moments. So we know the temperature outside is not what's responsible for the blood. What's actually happening is the testing inside is responsible for the blood. Jesus knows what lies ahead of him, and it's intense. John records next that the Romans come to arrest him in that garden where he's praying, and the heat of the moment is so high, Peter, living up to his words, if they all desert you, I'm not, pulls the sword out, swings it and cuts off one of the ears of a Roman soldier. We've heard this a thousand times. It's because he ducked and Peter probably whacked his ear off. But the ear fell in the dirt. And Luke records that the guy who lost his ear had a name. His name was Malchus. And Jesus responds, not by grinding it in the dirt with his foot like I would have. He responds by picking that thing up and putting it on him like he's Malchus' potato head or something. Who does that? Under that kind of pressure, knowing exactly what's in front of him the rest of the evening, who does that? When was the last time that you were busy, and I mean really, really busy, consumed with something that was at hand or in front of you, and all of a sudden you're interrupted by one of your kids who wants their shoe tied or they want a snack, or maybe ladies, you're getting ready for an important meeting? I mean, it's high level, it's intense preparation, and your husband needs a button sewn on his shirt, or he needs you to record the DVR of the game, something. Grr, right? That Jesus would care what happens to a guy's ear in this moment. Really? We wouldn't have thought less of him if he were left it in the dirt. 
But he gently reaches down, probably cleans the thing off, and he lovingly places it on Malchus's head. I don't know what that says about Malchus, but it speaks volumes to me about this Jesus that I serve. Over the next 24 hours, it doesn't stop with an ear. Let's move on to an eye. In Luke 22 and verse 54, we see the Lord's priorities again when we're by a fire that I spoke of a few moments ago. And we know this about this fire. When that fire is associated with Peter's name, we know what we're talking about. We're talking about denial. We're talking about loss of nerve. We're talking about loss of faith. Luke records, though, in verse 61 that we're also talking about when Peter did deny him for the third time. When this middle school girl says, aren't you one of those that was with him? And the third time he says, blankety blank, I was not with him. Luke records that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Really? In the midst of a mob that wants to see him dead, in the midst of a mob that's accusing him falsely of things he never did, in the midst of a mob who's not just accusing him of things he never did, but slapping him, humiliating him, he finds time to turn and look at a man who's denying him in public. Who does that? Answer, love does that. It's not about me, does that. And I don't know how he looked at him. It's just conjecture on my part, but I don't think it was with a disgusted look. I don't think he rolled his eyes. I think however you would do that in yourself, he, he, had, some, he had a look of concern on his eyes for Peter, and it broke Peter in half because it says he left there weeping bitterly. It's going to be okay, Pete. That's the eye. That's the ear. Now let's talk about some unfinished family business and we'll be done. John goes on to write. They beat him. They suspend him on a cross. And while he's there, of all the things that unfold, Jesus has some unfinished family business to take care of. He pulls himself up against the nails and he says, Mom, John's going to take care of you now. Specifically, exactly here's how John writes it. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here's your mom. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Now, I can just read that like my daily quiet time, but this week it just hit me. Are you kidding me? This is more than just something that the Lord forgot to to take care of on his list of things to do. Oh, by the way, let me get this done here while I'm hanging on a cross. Even dying on a cross, he makes sure that I know, Jimmy, listen to me, it's not about me. He's killing me here. What incredible love. What incredible compassion. And if all that's not enough, with his very last breath in a few moments, he pulls himself back up one more time on the cross. And he says, Father, would you please forgive these people for what they're doing? They don't know what they're doing. And he gives up his spirit and he dies. Of all the moments when if he was feeling a little impatient, feeling a little bit self self-absorbed, a little bit self-pity, 
I think I would have afforded him that, but he doesn't, he doesn't have that. I wouldn't think less of him for it if he did, but love has none of that because it wasn't about him. It was about doing what his father had asked and about doing what you, every single one of you, needed. What unselfishness. What absolute abandonment of self. That is love under pressure we're looking at. And yet, there are those who wonder sometimes, does God care about me? Could he show me a sign, something? And every time I hear something along those lines, I think about the cross, but I also think about a comedian, Steve Martin, don't you? Does God really care? Can he show me a sign? I think about a cross and I think about Steve Martin, especially the movie A Man with Two Brains. Seen that one? No, probably not. It's not one of my favorites, but it is a pretty cool movie. One of my favorite scenes in it, though, is Steve Martin's wife has died, and after several years, he falls in love again with another woman. And he's wanting to know if he can marry this other woman, but he wants to get his wife's permission. So he goes back to the, to the house, and he stands before his wife's painting on the wall, and he says, Honey... Could you give me a sign? Do you want me to marry this woman? And all of a sudden, the room starts shaking and the walls crack and the painting falls to the ground and there's this low, rumbling, no. And there's this pause by Steve Martin and he says, Honey, really, any sign will do. Any sign will do. God's given us a sign. And he placed it on a hill of public notice that no one in the world coming in or out of Jerusalem would miss. It's a hill that Rome used to advertise billboard style what it would cost you if you defied Rome. And on that hill of public notice, God chose to put his son to show the world how much he loved us. This much. This much. Here's your sign. You're going to find some signs on the way home when you leave this place. And if signs do what they're intended to do, they they cause you to do something. You're going to see a sign that tells you where to slow your car down to a specific speed because that's the speed limit. You're going to see a sign that tells you where to stop. You're going to see a sign that tells you where you can enter Cracker Barrel if that's where you'd like to have lunch. Well, sign's not very meaningful and it's not very significant if it doesn't help you do something. And I'm hoping with all of my heart this morning that the next time you see this sign or the next time you do that sign, that you remember this, it's not about me. I hope you see a sign from God this morning, some way, somehow, that makes me think about how I handle raising my kids, how I handle loving my spouse, how I handle the intensity with which I do my my job with. But I really am hoping that you hear it this morning that this is where we start with how we handle our money. We've just launched the Money Talk series, and you're going, really? You're going to tell me that, that the cross is, is, is some way, somehow a, a method, a way, a teaching, a principle by which I do my checkbook, uh, by the way I buy my groceries, by the way I pay for my car, or whether I get this house or that? Yes, I do. 
have this mindset among you, which was in Jesus Christ. It was not about him. And that's where we got to start. And those who get that and welcome that will be some of the richest people in the world. Even if they have to be some of the poorest people in the world. How do I know that? Because the richest man in the world shows me how. I hope this sign this morning makes you want to entrust your life to a God like that if you've not yet. I'm going to be right down here in front. And if that's you, you've never made the decision to become a Jesus follower and you're thinking, I'd like to get in on that kind of a sign. I'd like to follow that sign. We'll, we'll talk about how you, how you can do that in just a minute. And if you're here this morning and, and you are a follower of Christ, but you know you haven't been living under that sign very well this week, one of the cool things about coming together and taking this meal is, is that it's our, our rebaptism into Christ. It's our recommitment to say, Lord, you know me well, and you know I haven't been living under the sign of the cross much at all. Please help me start. And he'll say, okay.